I want you to imagine, you can close your eyes if it helps, I want you to imagine walking on the streets of Manhattan. Are you there yet? Now imagine somebody is standing on the corner of a street yelling damnation against New York City. Most of us New Yorkers are trained to ignore everything. We just kind of look down and walk quickly to where we're going. Some of us might call the police to have him removed for threatening the safety of the people. But instead of all of that, imagine the people around you stop to listen to him. And you can, see the, you can visibly see the fear of God strike the people's hearts. And people are weeping. They're moaning. And then they're taking out their phones. They're calling their loved ones. They're recording the preacher to send it to their friends. And before you know it, the streets are packed. The entire island of Manhattan looks like it's New Year's Eve. Suddenly, Mayor Eric Adams is on every screen calling for a citywide fast. Now imagine that you're the preacher. You're the one on the corner of the street. You're the one that stopped the traffic. And you're scanning the crowd, 360 view, witnessing all of this. What would your reaction be? Please open up your Bible to Jonah chapter 4. Jonah 4. Most of you know the story. Most of you know the story well. Jonah is a prophet in the northern kingdom of Israel. It's a time of idolatry and infighting and sin. And God commands Jonah to bring a word of prophecy to the people of Nineveh, which is, at the time, one of the major cities of the Assyrian Empire. And nobody likes the Assyrian Empire. History is a little bit funny this way. Because history has the illusion that it's based on objective facts. But really, it depends on the source and the perspective that it's written in. Because while history is objective, the events that happened, happened, the writer of those events puts it through a filter of their own mind and opinions and disposition. And the final product that we end up reading has been processed through that filter. For example, we know in U.S. history that the dominant storyline from 1861 to 1865 is the U.S. Civil War. But if you go south, like to Georgia, you may see markers referring to the Civil War as the war for Southern independence. But if you go more north to New England, like Connecticut, you'll see monuments referring to it as the Southern Rebellion. Same war, different names, it's all about perspective. But the Assyrians, in the history of the world, no matter what sources and perspectives you read, search the internet, Google it, go through your old high school global history notes, there are literally no mentions of anything positive about them. Nobody likes them. And so God sends Jonah, whose people are victims of the Assyrians' brutality, to go and preach to the Assyrians living in Nineveh. But this prophet, whose primary job is to be God's mouthpiece on earth, refuses and runs away. And already, Jonah violently veers from the pattern of any other book in the Bible. Because prophets do not run away. Jeremiah chapter 20, verse 9. If I say I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary with holding it in, and I cannot. No matter how much Jeremiah tries to deny delivering the word of God as a prophet, he is literally unable to. But Jonah does. He rebels. He rebels against God. Then he gets on a boat that's headed in the opposite direction. But God sends a storm so strong that the boat threatens to break apart. And after trying to hide from being exposed, Jonah finally reveals to the sailors that the cause of the storm is because God is angry with him and that they need to throw him off of the boat for the storm to stop. Jonah would rather drown 
then preach to the Ninevites. So the sailors reluctantly throw him off the boat, and the storm immediately stops. And the sailors, fearing God, repent. But the action doesn't stop there. No, instead of letting Jonah die, God sends a giant fish to swallow him. And here he repents in prayer and turns back to God. And after three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, God releases Jonah out of the fish and onto dry land. And finally, finally, Jonah walks to Nineveh and he preaches, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And immediately, there's a reaction. These bad guys, they begin to cry out to God for forgiveness. They don't know that they will be saved, but they repent anyway. This mighty city of this mighty empire surrenders to the threat of God's vengeance against their sins. And what unfolds is the largest revival in terms of scale ever recorded in the history of the world. In Jonah chapter 3 ends in verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. This book unfolds like an action movie. The rebellion, the storm, the fish, the revival. And it's filled with allusions and references and ironies and wordplay. But the final chapter is almost anticlimactic. It's a small conversation between just God and Jonah. It's the epilogue of the epic of Jonah. And because of that, it's probably the most overlooked section of the book. But as anticlimactic as it might be, and as confusing as some of the parts may be to understand, I want to submit to you this morning that this chapter is a major, crucial ingredient in making Jonah one of the most interesting books of the Bible. Follow along as I read Jonah 4. Jonah chapter 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry, and he prayed to the Lord. So chapters 1 and 3 involve pagans, non-covenant people of God, getting saved, and chapters 2 and 4 include prayers. And if chapter 2 was a prayer of submission to God in the fish, chapter 4 is a prayer of defiance against God in the city. We continue. He prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. This is important because Jonah waits until the end of the book to reveal why he really ran away in the first place. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Verse 6, Now the Lord God appointed a plant. Same word, God appoints a fish, now he appoints a plant, and made it come up over Jonah so that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed, again, appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? He asked the same thing. And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? Let's pray. 
<clears throat> Our Father in heaven, uh, we thank you for your providence. Uh, we thank you that you're a merciful God. We thank you that the catechism this morning uh, reflected the mercy of God above all things. And so we acknowledge that you are merciful and that you, uh, without our doing, took the initiative to reconcile us, reconcile us back to you. God, would you expand our hearts uh, this morning? Would you deepen our hearts this morning so that it might be more like yours in order that we might see through your eyes, we might see Jonah, we might see Nineveh through your eyes, and we might understand this text as you have intended. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This morning, we will unpack this narrative by looking through two perspectives. Number one, the protest of Jonah. Number two, the pedagogy of God. So protest of Jonah, pedagogy of God. First, the protest of Jonah. Many commentators note that the book of Jonah reflects the parable of the prodigal son. In chapters one and two, Jonah is the prodigal son. In the parable, a man has two sons. The younger son takes his inheritance from his father and runs away to a pagan land where he squanders everything. And when he's at the end of his rope, he returns home in hopes of being a servant since he forfeited his rights as an heir. In the book of Jonah, Jonah leaves his duty as a prophet and tries to run away to a pagan land. And when he's drowning, when he's at the end of his rope, he cries out to God. Do you see the parallelism? But in Jonah 4, Jonah is no longer the younger son. No, he's the elder brother. So in the parable, the father welcomes his son back home, restores him as a child, and throws a feast for their whole neighborhood to celebrate the son's return. Only the son's older brother, the eldest son of the father throwing the party, refuses to join in jealousy. And the father admonishes him in love, and the story ends in a similar rhetorical fashion as Jonah, with a question. Back to Jonah. Can you imagine the party in heaven during Jonah chapter 3? Jesus tells us, in fact, just a few short verses before he tells us the parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. But in this text, an entire city is brought to its knees in repentance. Imagine the choir of the legions of angels gloriously praising God and the music from their instruments reverberating all throughout the heavens. But Jonah, the means for this outpouring of grace on this city through his preaching, refuses to participate. And so commentators say Jonah once the prodigal son, is like the elder brother by the end of the book. So let's dig in. Verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Again, the it here refers to God's relenting of disaster that we saw in chapter 3, verse 10. And Jonah isn't just angry at that. He's exceedingly angry. Literally translated, the verse says, It was evil to Jonah, a great evil. And the word evil here shares the same root word as the word disaster, which God relented from. So are you tracking? There's a reversal. God relents or turns from his anger, but now Jonah turns toward his anger. And Jonah thinks that God's turning away from disaster is evil. It was evil to Jonah, a great evil. So again, New Yorkers have packed the streets in repentance. I realize that this is more unlikely than the New York Mets winning a pennant, but bear with me token North Shore joke. New Yorkers are on their knees crying out to God and forsaking their sins. And you preach a sermon that set the city on fire. What would your reaction be? What should Jonah's reaction be? Should he kneel and lift his hands in worship? Should he be so humbled that God would use him for such an unbelievable miracle? 
Or should he see what is happening and race back to Samaria to tell his people of what happened? That if God can do such a thing there, what would God do for his chosen people here? Should he be renewed in his calling to preach the word of the Lord like he's never done before? Probably all the above and more. But he doesn't do any of that. He responds in protest. And remember, Jonah's day job is to prophesy judgment against Israel if they don't repent. And he's not successful. We know this from reading the Old Testament. What will happen is that the northern kingdom of Israel will be destroyed piece by piece. Israel will be driven from their homes because of their unrepentance. And a prophet, during this time, their job would have been to warn Israel. So Jonah calls out to the Israelites and nothing. But Jonah preaches to these Ninevites and instantly there's a reaction. And therein lies the irony. Nineveh should have killed him. They should have stoned him. But he finally sees fruit, like enormous fruit, like a vineyard basically for the first time in his ministry. But he's angry. He's exceedingly angry. Why? Verses 2 and 3. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why, that is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Many speculate Jonah's racism or his fear for running away. And while there might be some truth to either of those, the text is abundantly clear. Jonah's problem isn't with the Ninevites. It's with God himself. And what he prays is meant to insult God. Please turn your Bibles to Exodus 34. Exodus chapter 34. And while you're turning there, some context. Moses just led the Israelites out of Egypt, and they set up camp at the base of Mount Sinai. Moses goes up by himself to receive instructions from God. And this is where God gives the Ten Commandments to the people of Israel. Meanwhile, the people take their gold, which, by the way, they providentially receive from God through the Egyptians, and build a statue of a calf, and they begin to worship it. So while God is in the process of issuing the first legal documents of their soon-to-be nation with his own hand, they create this idol to start worshiping. They don't see God, but God sees them. And God burns with anger. But Moses responds by pleading and begging and interceding for God to spare Israel. So God relents, just like in Jonah 3. Exodus 32, 14. I asked you to turn to Exodus 34, but I'm going to quote 32, 14 for now. Exodus 32, 14 says, And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Does that sound familiar? Jonah 3, 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. So there's a juxtaposition between what happened at Mount Sinai and in the city of Nineveh. And then as God restores the covenant, he calls out his own covenant name, Yahweh, and provides attributes to define that name of who he is. Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. The Lord passed before him, Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Sound familiar to Jonah's prayer? <clears throat> but like the great pastor Harry Fujiwara once said, when there are a lot of similarities, it's actually the differences that your eyes should be drawn to. 
The similarities serve to accentuate the differences. I tried. And here are the differences. First of all, there's no one interceding for the Ninevites. The Israelites had Moses. Moses, the most humble man to walk the earth until Jesus. But the Ninevites had no one. Second, God's relenting is prompted by Moses' interceding for Israel. But in Jonah chapter 4, God relented only when the Ninevites tore their clothes, wore sackcloth and ashes, and pronounced a government-mandated fast. Yet Jonah is far more comfortable with the compassion of God toward Israel than God's compassion toward the Ninevites. The third difference, the final difference from what I see, is that these attributes are now applied to non-Jews, the non-covenant people of God. So while coming from a sinful place, Jonah makes an almost prophetic revelation in what were previously limited to the covenant nation of Israel, which are now, for the first time in Old Testament revelation, vastly expanded to the rest of the world, including specifically the enemies of the people of God. He's essentially throwing God's name back at him. God's justice is equally as important as his forgiveness. And nowhere is that clearer than in the gospel. Because God doesn't just press the delete button on our sin. He doesn't just ignore it and look past it. Instead, God's justice is the basis, the foundation, the reason for his forgiveness. See, in today's culture, we have a big problem with God punishing sinners. How can God send people to hell? In the ancient Far East, the problem was, how can God not punish people to hell? What's his problem? But God takes a justice that was due for your sins and my sins and all the sins of human history and pours it out on his only son, Jesus Christ, so that those who turn away from their ways might instead receive mercy. Without the justice of God, there is no mercy. But Jonah has a problem with this mercy when it doesn't benefit him. He had no problem being saved from the sea. He had no problem being given a second chance at life. But once it was shown to others, no way. I don't like this God. And before we continue, maybe it's helpful to take a short detour. Because in every other chapter, the rebellion, the hardening of heart, the repentance, I know where Jonah's been. I can relate to him. But here, in this chapter, he comes off as a bit of a diva, a bit too easily offended. But then I was reminded of a parable that offended me. And maybe it's helpful to bring it up now. It's found in Matthew chapter 20, which was read earlier about the master and the day laborers. So the story goes, the master of a house needs some work in his vineyard. So he goes out and hires a few few people for the day and they get to work. A few hours later, he hires some more people, and a few hours of that, he hires another group. And then toward the end of the day, after most of the work was done, the sun is cooling down, he hires again a few more laborers. And when the day is over and the workers come to collect their wages, the master begins to pay everyone out the same amount. Now, the people who got hired out first see the imbalance and they complain. They worked the entire day and the others just came at the end and got compensated the same amount. And then the master responds first, Basically, we agreed on this before we started. Basically, I'm uh, fulfilling the terms of the contract that we both agreed on. And second, he says, quote, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me, or do you begrudge my generosity, end quote. And after reading this again recently, just to be honest with you, I was brought to repentance because I realized for some time I had a similar attitude at work. I know this is not what the parable is ultimately pointing to, but you get the offense. You show up, 
you do a good job, you're honest about your work, and you have this coworker who barely does the work, barely shows up, and they go home with the same salary. Does that sit right with you? We live in America, the capital of capitalism. That's got to bother you. I can't be the only one. But, and it bothers Jonah. He's saying, this is not fair. We did the thing. We did the temple stuff, the sacrifices. We did the reading of the law. And they've harassed us and attacked us and were proud about it and advertised it. And they repent this one time and yet you're saving them? Basically, to Jonah, the relenting of God's punishment against Nineveh was in, uh, in and of itself a punishment to him. So Jonah personally insults God's character, ignores his question, and builds a booth to watch the aftermath. Maybe the Ninevites go back to their sinful ways as soon as the 40 days is up. Maybe God decides to still destroy Nineveh. And then God appoints a plant to shade Jonah. In verse 1, he was exceedingly displeased. Now Jonah is exceedingly glad about the plant. But then God appoints a worm to destroy that plant, get rid of the shade, and Jonah desires death for the second time in this chapter, the third time in the book. I keep asking myself, why does Jonah go from having a shade to wanting to die? What's his deal? I think the heart issue is ultimately that he can't bear to see the Ninevites enjoy God's salvation. It just gets worse and worse for him. It's one thing, theoretically, to have your worst enemy saved. But to see them enjoying the practical benefits of God's grace has to bother you a little bit. And it does. Maybe not to the extent of death, but maybe Jonah is just a little bit more honest than us. Think about someone who has hurt you before. Physically. Emotionally. Spiritually. Maybe they hurt your family. Your neighbor's children. Or maybe someone that isn't even your enemy. But it's someone that offends you, someone that takes advantage of the weak. In theory, yeah, you want salvation for this person. But would it make you happy to watch them enjoy the practical benefits of the saving grace of God, at least in the beginning? Let's be honest. What is your reaction? You'll smile, you'll clap, you'll sing, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, let the earth hear his voice. But then you'll watch. You'll watch carefully. You'll say, we'll see if it's real. See how long it lasts. Instead of trusting in the power of the grace of God, you're just waiting for them to slip, for them to fall and sin. Let's take it a step further. They're not just at church, but they're beloved and they're serving everywhere. Again, maybe you're not wishing for death, but what seeing them enjoy growing quickly in faith, enjoying your church friends bother you just a little bit at least in the beginning. Maybe you wouldn't get angry, but would you enjoy honestly watching it as a brother or sister in Christ? By your actions, you would show that you're not comfortable with this person benefiting from God's mercy. Jonah doesn't consider what he was saved from in chapter one. Instead, he demands death because he just cannot see how God can be like this, which leads us to our next point, God teaching Jonah how he can be like this. That was point number one, the protest of Jonah. Point number two, the pedagogy of God. See, God doesn't write Jonah off as childish, nor does he strike him down for his defiance. And this should be both convicting and comforting to us because we quickly forget God's mercy. We quickly forget the truths that we sing on Sundays. 
We quickly vomit the food that is fed to us through the preaching of his word. And we quickly stumble and sin. So before we end up jonah in Jonah, who was quick to condemn, we must see how God treats Jonah here. And we can break down this point, the pedagogy of God, into two subpoints: How God teaches Jonah and how God teaches the readers. So first, Jonah. What is actually happening? The first thing to note is that considering Jonah is a prophet, God doesn't really speak verbally to Jonah this entire book. So Jonah is mad. God, he throws God's name back at him. And then God asks him a question. Do you do well to be angry? Jonah ignores the question and storms off out of the city. God doesn't stop him. God had every right to say, who are you to answer back to me? I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. But God doesn't do that. He's not playing a passive role either. He hasn't given up on Jonah. God waits patiently. And then Jonah builds a booth. Like us, Jonah builds his own little makeshift kingdom to see his sinful desires play out as he rebels. More importantly, it doesn't sound like he built a decent booth because God appoints a plant to provide for Jonah better shade. Okay, so more Hebrew from a Korean guy who never went to seminary. Are you ready? Pay attention. There's wordplay here that's helpful for us to understand the text better. So physically, hot sun, Jonah needs a shade. Metaphorically, the language used here in verse 6, to save him from his discomfort, is translated to save him from his evil. Same root word. God relented from the evil that he would do to them, the Ninevites. It was evil to Jonah, a great evil. And when the sun beat down on Jonah, God appointed a plant to save him from his own evil. That is the evil that he felt. Do you follow? The mercy in the form of a plant was meant to change Jonah's evil attitude toward Assyria. Additionally, there's a double entendre here where the word hot in Hebrew and the word anger in Hebrew both share the same root word. So the hot sun, while it is hot, is also to represent Jonah's anger, which is evil. But the next day, God appoints a worm to destroy that plant, that which was meant to save him from his own evil. God wants Jonah to feel it. And then the mic drop comes in verses 10 and 11. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? So to be upfront, because I was asked this even before both services, I don't know where I land with this, hun- this whole 120,000 persons thing. Some say it refers to babies in Nineveh, but that seems improbable. First, because nowhere else in the Bible are babies referred to as people who don't know their right hand from their left, although it was a way of describing them. But also second, more practically, if babies even made up conservatively 10% of the population, that's 1.2 million people, which the physical city of Nineveh would unlikely have been able to support. And then there are others that describe the 120,000 as the adult male population of Nineveh that are so morally corrupt that they don't know their right moral right from their moral left, that their moral compass is so off that they're like infants. This is also a guess because of the language used to describe the people. And others say it refers to 120,000 slaves or captives or POWs from the Assyrians. It's certainly not definitive by any measure, and at best, also a guess. So I don't know. But I think it's clear from what God is saying 
that our God cares about souls. God cares about his creation. Yes, evil plagued the city, but God cared about Nineveh when no one did, just like God cared and pursued Jonah. And here God argues from the lesser to the greater. If this tiny thing is true, how much more should this thing be true? This rhetorical device is used in the Bible many times. For example, Jesus does this in Matthew 6.30. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Basically here, you did not plant the seed for this plant. You did not water it. You did not even know this plant existed until you felt its shade. Yet you're grieving over this plant. How much more, Jonah, should you care about Nineveh, a city filled with people and livestock? I used you to bring this to reality. So if anything, you did more work for Nineveh than you did for this plant. How much more should you care about what's going on there? Your anger is a symptom of your hypocrisy, Jonah. And notice God's rebuke of Jonah has nothing to do with Jonah's prejudice, but God's more concerned with his own personhood as king as creator. Jonah threw God's name into question and God throws it right back. See, it's easy to have compassion on the weak. It's easy to be sad over those who are broken and need God. But what happens when the strong are shown compassion? Everybody likes the story of the underdog defeating the giant, but what happens when the ruthless escape the wrath of God? Jonah wanted them destroyed because they were strong. They were ruthless. Nobody in history liked them. They were clearly the bad guys. And God should topple the strong, the oppressors. But God positions the Ninevites as the weak ones. God positions the Ninevites as the ones who need pity. See, it's not the Ninevites who are strong and proud and barbaric. It's Jonah. Jonah believes he deserves a fish. Jonah deserves a shade. Jonah deserves to sit on the judgment seat and judge his own creator. Jonah's reaction to Nineveh's repentance was to camp outside, hoping to see them fall back on their sin. The irony is that it was his repentance that was short-lived, not the Ninevites. And yet God is compassionate to both. Finally, God is also teaching parabolically. That is, Jonah, while it actually happened, is also being used as a parable for its readers. The whole story of Jonah is used to illustrate Israel's redemptive history and is a teaching lesson for the fate that is to come for Israel and for Judah. First, we have the irony of the booth. This is the same word we see in Exodus. See, God's provision for Israel in the desert was that they lived in booths, and a feast was instituted to even commemorate that. The Israelites would sit in a booth for a week to remember that their residence in the promised land was only because of God's grace. But this booth that Jonah builds is inadequate. So God appoints a plant to grow and provide a shade over Jonah to save him from himself. Like a lot of other things in this book, there's much debate on the type of plant and its properties that's shading Jonah. But the common agreement is that the plant was likely just native to the area. So much ado about the actual plant itself than what it actually represents. And to understand what it represents, we need to understand language from Israel's redemptive history. See, Israel was always at war, trying to take others' land for themselves or losing it to captors uh, because of their rebellion against God. But the idea of peace is represented in the form of sitting under a shade. That's how peace is represented. 
So 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 25, in summarizing Solomon's reign as king, and Judah and Israel lived in safety. From Dan, even to Beersheba, every man under his vine and under his fig tree all the days of Solomon. Zechariah chapter 3, verse 10. In describing Israel's deliverance after exile, in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. In Michael chapter 4, verse 4, in describing the reign of Christ as king, but they shall sit, every man, under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. And I believe in connection with the booth and the plant, the parallelism is meant to have the plant represent the promised land of Israel, the shade, until the worm eats it. The worm would represent Israel's conquerors. When Israel enjoyed the land, it had no qualms. They had no problem with the mercy of God. It's when the plant was taken away that the anger arose, and then there was a problem with God. And then we have God's response in verse 10. You did not deserve the plant, Jonah. This is the point of the promised land. The land was never theirs. It was someone else's land, someone else's vineyard. Exodus 23. Little by little, I will drive them out before you until you have increased and possessed the land. And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the Euphrates. For I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you shall drive them out before you. The Lord had driven out the enemies and delivered the land into the hand of Israel. Israel did nothing to deserve the promised land. It was handed to them. It was given to them. And to put an exclamation point on this lesson, the worm eats the plant, the gift that they took advantage of. And then God sends, the text says, a scorching east wind against Jonah. So physically, Jonah's in pain, right? Whatever his skin condition is from the fish for being in there for three days and three nights, the sun is beating down on him again, and a strong wind comes up against him. And Jonah's decision to camp out on the east of the city, which is in verse 5, puts him directly in the path of the east wind. Verse 8, when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. Do you know where else we see the east wind? Exodus chapter 14, verse 21. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land and the waters were divided. God provided a strong east wind to separate the Red Sea and deliver Jonah's people, God's people, from slavery and death to undeserved freedom. So God uses his greatest act of deliverance up until that point in history to teach Jonah and Israel a lesson about his deliverance of a pagan nation. A lot of people think the God of the Old Testament is always angry, but that's just not the case. His mercy is so loud. God is patient with Jonah as he is patient with Israel. And the lesson he teaches Jonah is meant to teach Israel. Because Jonah's reaction was exactly what God expected from Jonah. He was not surprised by Jonah's reaction. And he was using Jonah's reaction to prophesy how Israel would respond. In Romans chapter 11, I'm sure Ed will get to this in six or seven years. He's getting there. It means he's getting there. In Romans 11, Paul talks about God's grace being extended from Israel to the Gentiles. In verse 11 of the 11th chapter, Paul says, So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. 
Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Arguing from the lesser to the greater. Now, I am speaking to you, Gentiles. Inasmuch then, as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. It's the whole parable of the master and the laborers in the field, right? Gentiles being grafted in is a glorious thing. But a dual purpose here is to also make the Jews jealous in hopes that if they see the foreigners, these hateful foreigners, be loved by their God, enjoy the grace of their God, maybe they can be jealous to come back to the God who provided the shade, the God who provided their promised land, the God who delivered them in the first place. The promised land, the foreshadow of our salvation, was given to them freely and without merit. And now a taste of it was given to Nineveh, which the world would soon receive. But while the worm eats the plant, eats the promised land, God still offers hope. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 11. There shall come forth a shoot, another plant, from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. This shoot, this branch, is the promise of Christ a deliverer, a forever king who will fulfill the promises of God to all people. Verse 10, In that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. And so we wait, not for the destruction of Nineveh, but for the day of the Lord, that those who did not repent from their evil would face the righteous and eternal judgment that awaits them in hell but that those who have repented from their evil and turned to the mercy of our God who share in his glorious resting place with him. Revelation chapter 21, verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the Lamb, that is Jesus Christ. By its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Amen. A few points of application before we close out. Number one, parents, discipline under control. You're required to discipline. You're required to correct your children. Jonah felt the pain, certainly, in God's discipline. But God never rushed. He was never reactive, and he never waited too long. This is consistent with Adam and Eve, After they sinned and hid, God walked in the garden. He didn't rush in. He wasn't blinded by rage, nor did he turn a blind eye. So discipline out of wisdom. Let's learn from God our Father. Number two, consider signs of pruning in your life as potentially discipline from the Lord. See, God removes the plant to teach Jonah a lesson. And not always, but oftentimes, when there is a pruning effect in your life, Consider whether it is a sign of discipline of the Lord, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves, Hebrews 12, 6. Is he removing some comfort in your life that that you enjoyed in your sin to wake you up and notice God's presence? Alternatively, number three, rely only on honest self-reflection to evaluate whether you're walking with the Lord. Rely only on honest self-reflection to evaluate whether you're walking with the Lord. Because sometimes we tend to rely on our circumstances, on how we're doing spiritually. But Jonah shows us two errors. When Jonah yells at God in verses 2 and 3, in just two verses, 
Jonah uses a variation of I, me, my seven times. It's all about him. And because he's looking through a narrow filter of his own self-centeredness, he wrongly believes that what he perceives is actually truth. And when we're thinking only in the context of ourselves, we keep a limited view of what reality is. It's distorted and almost always wrong. The more we look and pray to view from God's perspective, the more we can understand the bigger picture. And additionally, our comforts do not mean that we're good with God. Jonah builds an inadequate booth and God provides a shade for him. See, we're not as self-sufficient as we think we are. Our comforts, our health, our surroundings are kind gifts from God. Even in our sin, God provides for us. And just because you're comfortable now, financially, relationally, doesn't mean that you're necessarily right with God. The only thing that keeps you from the fires of hell is the restraining, merciful hand of God. The only thing that keeps you from your rightful place in the depths of the wrath of God is the mercy of God. You are a greater enemy to God than your greatest enemy is to you. And he holds you from the pit of hell. Consider your position. Do not be distracted by your job, your family, your friends, your health. Consider your position. Application point four, God's mercy is greater than your sin. His mercy is more. There are two extremes of how people view God's mercy that you encounter as an elder or a counselor. On one side, you have those who think that repentance of a serious sin is simple. I prayed, I repented, let's move on. And there are those who think their sin to be egregious, so egregious that God's wrath is against them, that there's no way for forgiveness. They beat their hearts and they cry and Psalm 51 is prayed out, but then they miss out on restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. And they're convinced that God's mercy is just not for them. So I want to address this latter group. It's somewhere in the middle that we need to be, but I want to address this latter group specifically. I want to remind you how God describes himself and how even Jonah described God. You're a gracious God and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. We've seen already that God doesn't say any more than he really needs to. But here, God is repetitive. He's redundant. He's using different words to say the same exact thing, which tells you, if God wants you to know anything about him, it's that he's merciful. He loves to forgive. It was for mercy God sent his son. It was for mercy that God sacrificed his only begotten son that the guilty might walk free. Sin and despair like the sea waves cold threatened the soul with infinite loss. Grace that is greater, yes, grace untold, points to the refuge, the mighty cross. Do you realize that the dying thief on the cross was someone who lived a life of sin worthy of capital punishment? He was supposed to be on that cross. And it's only with his final breath, basically seated in the electric chair, moments before the switch is flipped, he confessed Christ, did nothing else, and then he died. And it's this evil, violent sinner that will be the very first to enter into the glories of heaven before anyone else. 
the very first to benefit from the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, the very first to receive the ultimate mercy of God. Jonah's anger was because he felt that it wasn't fair. But Jonah, it's so much better than fair. Our God takes pleasure in saving sinners. Be encouraged. Finally, application point number five, the mercy of God radically changes you. See, only one other book in the Bible ends with a question, and it also happens to be a minor prophet sent to Nineveh some years after Jonah. Nahum chapter 3, verse 19. There is no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about your hands clap... All, all who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. For upon whom has not, your, has not come your unceasing evil? By this time, Nineveh has grown to be the major city of the Assyrian Empire. Gone are the days of the revival, and Nineveh has returned to its ways and has become ruthless. And this question in Nahum is a question of judgment. So we see what happens to Nineveh. But we aren't exactly sure what happens to Jonah. Commentators are quick to point out the novelty of such a cliffhanger. Did Jonah double down on his sin? Did Jonah repent? How did Jonah answer? I think it's safe to say that this book we just read is Jonah's answer. It's his response to the question. And if he didn't write it, he definitely publicized it. Tim Keller says it beautifully, quote, How do we know Jonah was so recalcitrant, defiant, and clueless? How do we know that he made that unbelievable, I hate the God of love speech? How do we know about his prayer inside the fish? The only way we can possibly know these things is if Jonah told others. What kind of man would let the world see what a fool he was? Only someone who had become joyfully secure in God's love. Only someone who had believed that he was simultaneously sinful, but completely accepted. In short, someone who had found in the gospel of grace the very power of God, end quote. See, the full display of God's mercy, not just his pity toward Jonah or the 120,000, but toward the countless generations of people like you and me who build our own little booths and crown ourselves in our sin and arrogance, the full extent of God's pity toward us was not through a private conversation between God and man, but it was publicly displayed in the humiliation of his only son on, Christ, on Calvary. It's not when God sends a fish or a plant or a worm or a strong east wind. It's when God sends his own son to take on the full judgment in our place. It was for mercy that Jesus Christ descended to earth that he might take on the punishment due for our arrogance, our pride, our sins, so that those who believe on him could inherit his righteousness and walk free. That's what it cost. That's the price of the mercy of God. And this is the mercy that lets the guilty walk free. This is the mercy that changes both the Ninevites and Jonah. This is the mercy that calls the wicked precious. There's no redeeming quality about Jonah in this entire book that bears his own name. The book of Jonah is less about Jonah and it's actually about God. His love his pursuit, his mercy. And Jonah spends the rest of his life telling others about God's mercy, even if it was at his expense. When you are saved by such a great mercy, your sins become your testimony, your witness of the mercy of God. Your past has no bearing. Your reputation has no bearing. 
And that's exactly what you see in Jonah. He doesn't care what you think of his foolishness, his pettiness, his sins. He cares how you see God in contrast to them. It's God's mercy that sums up the gospel. And our God, the Father, desires us to know him by his mercy. This mercy is also meant for us to share with others, those who've hurt us, those who've bullied us, those who've neglected us, those who share different political or theological views as us, or even those who cut us off in traffic. We're not meant to go for the jugular and win our battles. We're meant to show mercy, for we've been shown mercy. It's just our family resemblance. Are you reminded of this mercy? Have you been changed by this mercy? Let's pray. Our God, our Father, we thank you that you are a God of mercy, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Lord, we pray for those who have experienced your mercy all their lives but never recognized it, never knew it, never saw it. We ask that you would make this mercy bolder to them, that it would be visible before their eyes and it would be ever present before their eyes, that they would have nowhere to turn, nowhere left or right to go, but straight into your mercy and repent and turn from their ways, relent from their evil and onto you, onto your mercy and your gloriousness, that they might be saved unto righteousness. And God, we pray for those like us, like me, who have experienced your mercy, but we ask for forgiveness for not living as those, as, as one who has changed from your mercy, who share your mercy with those who need it, who need to see it. God, would you change our hearts? Would you change our perspective? And as we leave these doors, would we be moved and changed and scream uh, your mercy out loud to the rest of the world, to the ends of the earth? Lord, give us your heart. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.